Well, good morning. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, worship team. And as the Apostle Paul said, there's no other foundation that can be laid other than that which has been laid, that's Jesus Christ. If you would, I'm going to have you open up your Bibles to Psalm 43. Uh, Pastor Steve, as you know, is still on uh, mini-sabbatical until next week. He'll be back with us in the pulpit. And I'm excited to share with you today from Psalm 43, 14 truths about God to define and direct our lives. And I believe that wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, uh, God's Word has a lot to say to us today. If you are here and you feel that in your walk that you just are beaten up and you feel spiritually dry, God's Word is here for us to draw on and to realize that He is the refuge of our soul. If you're here and you just feel like you want to grow in your walk with Christ, we'll find that here. If you're here and you've been walking with Christ for many years and you feel uh, that God has made great advancement in your life and you can see that and yet you know uh, that you'd still need more increase in grace, that's here. And if you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Christ, we'll see today from the passage also that, that Christ is the only solid rock for our lives and the only hope for our lives. So why don't we pray before we dig in. <clears throat> Father, we bow before you, we come before you, needy of you, acknowledging that only in Christ is there hope. Only in Christ is there salvation. We know that we uh, are sinners in need of grace. And we look to you. And God, we come today, some of us, uh, maybe at our wit's end, maybe we feel like we're at the end of our rope. I'm so grateful to you that you allow us to see through the writers of Scripture that it's okay to feel these feelings. It's okay. And we can look to you as our hope and our salvation, as our solid rock. And I pray, God, that you would just bless our time together as we open the word together, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get to the truths about God, I want to share some embarrassing truths about myself first. I had, as a, uh, growing up, um, this strange habit of getting my fingers and hands and arms stuck in places that they shouldn't. I remember getting stuck in a pop bottle, in a welcome mat. I remember once as an, a young driver, and young drivers don't do this, I was driving and I saw something on the dashboard that I wanted to touch and I stuck my arm through the steering wheel and I got stuck. And so I found out how to use a brake very quickly. But I think the most embarrassing one that happened to me all happened when I was in high school in Latin class. We had desks that had these ink wells in them. And I don't know why they had ink wells, because we had ballpoint pens by that point. But they, we had these ink wells, and they had these big hole right there and a smaller hole at the bottom. And one day in class, about five or ten minutes left in class, I was starting to zone out. We were winding down, and I was just daydreaming, I think, and I started moving my hand around that hole and kind of moved my little pinky into that hole, kind of fiddling around with it, and then I went to pull my pinky out, and it was stuck. I thought, oh no, what am I going to do? And I kept working on it, working on it, working on it, I could not get that thing out. 
And I'm starting to think, what are my friends going to think? My desk was right in line with the door, and the bell's going to ring in about two minutes now, and people are going to be walking by, and they're going to be pointing at me and laughing. So I'm, I'm getting really kind of stressed out by this, and I literally thought, I'm just going to yank it out of there. I don't care. And I know if I had, I probably would have broken my finger. But I was allowing that moment to my circumstances to define who I was and what I was about to do. So my friends began to find out about it, and I think if I remember right, they assured me they had my back. And uh, we notified the teacher, the teacher sent for the janitor, and then the bell rang before the janitor got there. And students started piling out, students were walking by, and one of my friends decided it would be fun to stop everybody in the hall and point to me, the fact that I was stuck. So everybody's looking, pointing in, laughing, 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 and, and finally the janitor arrives, and he gets down and he assesses the situation, and he looks up underneath the desk, and he sees that my, how my finger's wedged, and he just gives a little gentle push, and I'm out. So the day was saved, but it was without much embarrassment. But anyway, in bigger things, we... We allow ourselves to be defined by things in our life, circumstances, and then we determine what we're going to do based on that. And I think God's word shows us that we can choose to have his truth, the gospel of Christ, define who we are, and let that, out of that, our lives can flow. And it's a great battle that we face every day, and it's not easy. It's a battle of the spirit and the flesh. And I believe in Psalm 43, he, he, he lays out a pattern that, that we can follow and we can have victory in these areas in difficult circumstances. And we see the psalmist will really wrestle with God, and it's okay to do that. And in the midst of his wrestling, there are 14 truths that I saw in here about God that, that kind of surface, that we can embrace and we can be enabled to face these struggles. Now, this is not 14 ways to have a stress-free life or eliminate anxiety or depression. It's not 14 ways to better our circumstances. We may have some circumstances in life that will never change. We may battle them our entire lives, but in Christ, we have the ultimate victory. And these truths apply to us as well as the psalmist because as believers in Christ, these truths are ours through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf at the altar of Calvary. And now we know that one of the tools that God uses in our life to cause us to grow is suffering. And it can come in many forms. But it's clear that each one of us will have to endure suffering in this life to one degree or another. And when faced with difficult circumstances, we, can, we have a choice. I'm, I'm going to either run to God or I'm going to run away from God. And we'll see from this psalm that the blessings are to run to God and not away from him. If you were to think right now about the deepest pain or sorrow that you've ever felt in life, does anything specific come to mind? And for some of us, there may be many of them. And for some of us, it may seem to be that life has been nothing but sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. That thing can take us on a whirlwind of emotions. It might be something from our distant past, or maybe it's something going on right now, or maybe the emotions are still extremely raw. It may be something that has made you question, where is God in all of this? Why, God? Where are you? Maybe it's the death of a loved one, or maybe you've been betrayed or attacked, or 
you feel like you're under tremendous oppression. Or maybe your own personal sin has left consequences in your life that never go away, and you wish you could go back and change that one moment, and it would be different. But I love the Word of God because it doesn't hide the troubles and weaknesses of its characters, and we can identify with that. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 here of Psalm 43, and then we're going to unpack it together and see the path that we can come to find joy in the midst of our troubles and sorrows. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The first four verses, he's talking to God. The last verse, he turns and he talks to himself. It's very interesting how this is set up. He wrestles with God, he pours out his heart to God, and in the process he reminds himself of the truths that he, of the truths of God that he needs to apply to his life to battle his problems and his issues. He pours out his heart to God and then he preaches to himself. And I'd like to divide our, our uh, uh, time up into two sessions. God talk, which we consider pouring out our heart to God, and soul talk, which is preaching the gospel or the truth of God to yourself. We find in these first four verses that the psalmist is in dire straits and he's come to his wit's ends. We wonder, what is he feeling emotionally? His relationship with whoever he is speaking about is in complete breakdown mode. He's being oppressed by his enemy. He's feeling betrayed and he's feeling attacked. He's feeling rejected by God. He doesn't feel a sense of his palpable presence. And the pain is so intense that he cannot see God's hand in the midst of his circumstances. Have you ever felt that way? Do you feel like you're in that place now? And I think all of us at one point in our lives, if not many points, we've all been there. But we're in good company because so is the writer of this psalm. And I think it's so tender of God to allow us to see into the heart of the authors of Scripture The Bible is completely and absolutely the Word of God, and yet he uses frail human beings to write it. I find great comfort in that. And we can look at our own experience in life and find that the writers of Scripture have experienced the same types of hardships and trials that we have. They've walked in our shoes, and so we can read their words, God's Word, and find deep and changing truths that apply directly to our lives. And it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to pour out your heart to him. In fact, he wants you to. It's okay to say, God, what is going on? I don't get this. But we must spend time in prayer. We must spend time pouring out our hearts to him, but opening his word and and seeing his truth and taking those truths to our heart. As we read through this, we're going to list out 14 truths that I saw in here about God 
I'm gonna, we have one a key word to kind of remember it and then a statement that will follow it. But we look first at verse 1 and we actually see, see three truths about God. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. And truth number one is God is our vindicator. The vindication has to do with justice, what is right and what is true. Did this person do something wrong or not? Have you ever been falsely accused of anything? One time when I was in college, I checked out a book from the library. In fact, it was a big and expensive book. And when I returned it, there was a return bin outside the library door that you could put your books in to return them, and I did that. And then I thought the matter was done, but a few days later I received a notice that I had not returned the book and I had to pay for it. And as much as I tried to convince them that I did take that book back, they said, no, we don't. Basically, I was, felt like I was being called a liar because they did not believe me, and I ended up paying for the book. And it wasn't fair or just, but I got blamed for it. And those things in life can happen. We can get blamed for things that we didn't do, and, but we can still rest in God as our vindicator. God is the ultimate judge. He sees everything, and he is the one that will make all things right one day. But the scripture also tells us that all of us, maybe not in that instance, but all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and we all have guilt before God. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has paid our debt by dying on the cross. And through faith in Christ, God justifies us or vindicates us. Romans 3.26 says that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, and that's good news. So if God is my vindicator eternally, he's also my vindicator in this world. And I may suffer now for things in my life, maybe even things I haven't done, but someday that stuff's going away. And God's going to say, you're mine. He's going to make it right one day. Number two out of this verse, God's our defender. And this word carries the idea of of uh, warding off an attacker. It's standing up for someone in trouble. It's having an advocate. It's having a lawyer on your side. And we know that in, in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is called our advocate. He defends us before the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins. He stands before the Father and says, I paid for their sins. And he defends us. So if we are in difficult circumstances, we can depend upon God to defend us. Number three from this verse is God is our deliverer. Deliverance involves being removed from one place and transferred to another. Here would be the idea of he wants to be removed from this place that he's in, this trouble that he's in, this place of danger and brought to a place of safety. There are times when we will feel that deliverance and we'll see it happen. We'll be in a bad situation and God will work out the circumstances and we'll come through the other side and we'll breathe a sigh of relief and we'll go forward and that's a good thing. But there's some times in our lives when those circumstances aren't going to be taken away. That's when we need to realize that our hope is in Christ and it's an eternal hope. There's a man named Vicky Vojacic. He's from Australia. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Maybe some of you have. Uh, He's a a Christian evangelist. He 
was born with, with a rare condition where he has no arms or legs. And obviously, he has life rough. And as he was growing up, uh, on a couple different occasions, he contemplated... Whoop. Speaking of difficult circumstances. He contemplated ending his life. And one time he tried to do that. And another time he was contemplating that. And he came to his point in his life, much like the psalmist did, where he just, he cried out to God, God, why? And he was very defiant. He said, I refuse to follow you unless you answer my question, why? And he said in the stillness of his heart, not necessarily a spoken word, a voice, he heard God speak to his heart, and he said, do you trust me? And he said that radically changed his life. He came and put his faith in Christ, and he turned from someone who was allowing himself to be defined by horrible, horrible circumstances and allowing his life to be directed by that to someone who now found their identity in Christ and now allowed that to change him. He has now spoken, shared the gospel with four and a half million people, and uh, conservative estimates say that 200,000 people have come to Christ through his ministry. He said that he would rather go through life without arms and legs if people will come to Christ and he'll spend eternity with them than to have arms and legs in this life. I just want to read you a quote from him. He says, I am not a man without arms or legs. I am a child of God. I am forgiven of my sins. I am an ambassador of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am nothing but a servant of the Most High God. This is not about Nick. This is not about Nick's capability, capacity to become this conqueror. I am nothing. I am nothing. God lives in me, and I now live in his strength. And whatever Jesus conquered, I conquered. Isn't that amazing? No arms or legs. And now God has answered his prayer. And God has brought an amazing woman to his life. He's married. He now has a child, and he's incredible ministry and God is just using him and we know that God is sovereign but if he had gone the direction he wanted to go he wouldn't be here and all of that would not have happened but we know God works all things together God kept his hand on him God would not allow him to go in that direction he wanted to be delivered he wanted to have arms and legs God could give him arms and legs in this life. God can do anything. Most likely, he's going to go through life without arms and legs, and God's going to continue to use him this way. But he has a deliverance, as, do, as does every believer in Christ, that is here and now, and yet also has a future aspect to it. Listen to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The moment God opened our eyes and we came and placed our faith and trust in Christ, God delivered us from one domain to another. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, 
And right here and right now, we are part of that kingdom. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what's happening to us, no matter what relationship breakdowns we have, if we have put our faith in Christ, this is true of us. If we can grab onto that reality and realize that we are delivered now, we don't have to be held captive by whatever's going on around us or what's going on to us. We can choose to have the truth of God define us and choose to act that out rather than in our flesh. We move on to our next truth. It comes from verse 2. He says this, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning, go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? God is our refuge. Here he says that. And this is the place of safety in the midst of the storm. Think of an impenetrable castle surrounded by a moat possessing high walls with guards at every post. Nothing gets through. And God's people are so secure that nothing can penetrate that wall of protection. I was reading through Psalm 48 this week, and when you get a chance, go back and look at that, and it's talking about Mount Zion, and you get this picture. Nothing penetrates Mount Zion, and again, that's an eternal kingdom. Nothing can penetrate that. We are so secure that nothing can penetrate God's wall of protection in our lives. Now again, we must acknowledge that sometimes it doesn't seem that way. We might not feel that all the time, but because we don't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. Some may say, well, what about, what about the Christians that are martyred for their faith? Did God let down his wall of protection? No, he didn't. We are protected in this life until the day that our service to Christ is complete and the day that God determined before he ever created anything, the beginning and the end of our life, we are, com- we are completely protected and then God translates us into his presence. It's amazing. It's amazing to think about. But in this verse is when the psalmist comes to the fork in the road. He knows these truths about God, and yet he is still at his wit's end. He's not feeling this. He's not feeling the palpable presence of God, and the oppression of the enemy has got him reeling. And again, I think we've all been there before. We know the truths about Christ. We know the gospel. We know that he died for us and rose again. And yet we're in this circumstance where we just don't see it. We don't feel it. We don't feel like stepping out in faith. And the psalmist is going to be real with God here, and God wants us to be real with him. He doesn't want us to put on uh, airs and just say, oh, everything's fine, I'm doing good. He wants us to be real with him. He wants us to cry out to him. We don't have to hide our feelings from God. Our circumstances can bring us to this fork in the road, and we can say, what am I going to do about this? Am I going to follow through on my own thinking, in my own way, or am I going to follow God's way? If I follow in my own way, it tends to end up with fear and anxiety and depression and anger and envy and jealousy and retaliation, backbiting, gossip, on and on and on. And again, those are things that all of us can can battle. But God wants us to look to him in those times. He doesn't want us to rely on our own strength. He doesn't want us to try and tough it out and work through things on our own. The only course that we have in those times 
is the best course, and that's just to cry out to God. And the psalmist did this. And Nikki Vahoyich did this. We run to him. The reason we can do that was because God's son actually felt and experienced the separation from the Father so that we would never have to. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he did that for us. Because he took the wrath of God, his Father, on himself that was due to us. We who have placed our faith in him will never experience separation from God, even if it feels like it. The scripture will tell us we are never, ever, ever separated from him, and that he will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us, no matter what circumstances tell us. Is that not amazing news? We have that hope. So the right course for us is to cry out to God for direction, and that's what the psalmist does. And as he does that, he's going to be brought into the presence of God, and he'll begin to see things from a different perspective, from a heavenly perspective. And that's the key for us in, our, in the midst of our circumstances as well. So look at verse 3 with me, if you would. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. These next three truths you could really mesh into one. And when I was trying to come up with a title for this sermon, it went from 14 truths to 12 truths to 15 truths, and finally I settled on 14. But these three here go together, but I've kind of separated them that we could look at briefly. The first one is out of this is God is our light. He says, send out your light. He's in this moment. He cannot get out of it, and he cries to God, send it out, God. It doesn't come from within. It comes from God. A couple weeks ago, I went in to check on our son Matthew in the middle of the night. It was dark. As I went over to check on him, I stepped on one of his toys, and it was not fun. It was quite painful. But I was walking in the dark, and I couldn't see where I was going. Uh, obviously, I don't want to turn on the light because it might wake him up. But uh, in that moment, because of the darkness, I couldn't see where I was going, and I, I injured myself. Well, God doesn't want us to do that. We have the light of God's truth. We, Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Jesus said this, about himself, that he is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we get on our knees before God and we open up his word and we cry out, Jesus, please lead me. Please guide me. We can be confident that he will do so. Because God is also our truth. Number six. If we want to navigate through a difficult circumstance, we certainly want to make decisions based on what is right and true. If someone told you that green means stop and red means go, you're going to be a little bit nervous when you come up to a stoplight, or the rest of us are. So we need to know what's true so we can navigate life properly. 
God's word is the truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And again, Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. We must bow to him and follow him through every course of life. Even if it means making decisions that are hard, we must follow Christ. Because number seven, God is our guide. Through his light and truth, God leads us or guides us through life. And Jesus said in John 16, 13, that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. As believers in Christ, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We're sitting here right now, and the Spirit of God dwells in, a, in our bodies. It's incredible. And it's, it's, it's such an intimate relationship with God. And even the, the apostles and the, the disciples, before the Spirit was poured out, they were in Jesus' presence. They saw him within, with their eyes. But after the Spirit was poured out, he, he went from being alongside them to being inside them. So the implications of that are amazing. It's, it's convicting, because that means wherever you are, God is. But it's also comforting, because wherever you are, God is. doesn't matter what we're going through. <clears throat> Christ in us. But notice in verse 3, where does God lead him? He leads him to his holy hill and to his dwelling. The Spirit of God leads us to the throne room of God. And there we come face to face with his holiness. The very distinct way to discern the voices that we're hearing, the voice of God or the voice of the evil one or the voice of our flesh, the Spirit will always take us from the place that we're at to his throne room. What do I mean by that? For example, he's going to convict me of my sin. If, if I'm off target on something and I've sinned, he's going to convict me of that. But then he's also going to remind me that Christ died for that sin. Christ rose again for me. There's forgiveness the evil one tells you, you're a sinner, you are horrible, and he heaps up the condemnation, and he doesn't point you to the cross. He leaves you there. Likewise, if I'm in a difficult circumstance, and all I feel is hopelessness, that's what Satan wants us to feel. He wants us to feel that there's no way out of this. God has forsaken you. You're never going to be the same. This relationship's never going to be the same. You are in trouble for the rest of your life. Blah, 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 blah. God says, you've got hope. I've redeemed your life. You've got a place in heaven. I'm with you right now, right here. God is in control. He is sovereign over every single circumstance in our life. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. Even though I can't see it. Even though I can't feel it. He's good and I'm going to trust him. That's what we have to do. That's the battle that we face to get there. We need, we need to get on our knees and, and just cry out to him. It's, it's not easy, and none of us are perfect at this. And we fall every day. But we need to encourage one another to do this. We need to encourage one another's brothers and sisters in Christ to do this. We're not in this alone. One of the things that, that when we get into horrible circumstances or we've messed up, we tend to withdraw into ourselves. We don't want to be around other believers. Maybe we stop coming to church because we've, we've fallen or something or, or we're not getting along with somebody. We want to pull back and draw in. God says, no, 
Come to me. Come and be in my, in my church. Fellowship in my body. It's one of the big reasons that we really are desirous to see home groups take off this fall. We're more and more as a body, we can come together and fellowship together. We need to believe the truth about what's going on in our lives and not a lie. And what we embrace will affect our reactions and how we live. If God's truth defines me, then I'm going to make wise choices. If I allow my circumstances to define me, then I'm going to make poor choices. And it's critical that we fight this battle. As I said, the psalmist has asked God uh, to send out his light and truth and to be led into the very presence of God to his holy hill and to his dwelling place. And truth number eight is God is holy, and yet he allows his children access into his holy presence. God's holiness is absolute perfection and righteousness. He is pure light and goodness, completely without sin or blemish. The prophet Habakkuk said his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Because of his holiness, he must and he does punish sin. And when we truly engage him in his holiness, we see ourselves for the sinners that we truly are. This was Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6, and we sang holy, holy, holy today. And I told Matt on the way in, I was thinking that'd be a great song for this morning, and I didn't tell him that beforehand, and, and the Holy Spirit led him to put that in the... Uh, repertoire today, so I was very excited about that. But Isaiah heard the angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he sees the holiness of God and he sees that he is a sinner. God's holiness makes our sin visible. If God was only holy, we would be in trouble. But look what happens next with Isaiah. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God is holy, but God is also love, mercy, grace. And we see that through the altar. And we see that with the psalmist in Psalm 43, and that's our ninth point. That access into God's presence is only through the altar. He says, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. The altar is the place of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they offer their sacrifices on the altar uh, to atone for their sins. They knew that the altar was the key to their relationship with God, and their faith in God was grounded there. And those sacrifices were just a shadow of the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God. God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. He offered himself on the altar of Calvary. And in so doing, he paid our debt, taking upon himself the wrath of God, so that we can know forgiveness of sins and have an intimate relationship with him forever and ever. 
The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's through Jesus. And the psalmist knew it was through the altar. The Old Testament prophets knew that Messiah was coming. They knew, but they they had a shadow vision of it. And Jesus came on the scene and fulfilled all the promises. And now we look to Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came 2,000 years ago. All of us, every single one of us, have fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is holy and just, he must punish our sin. And the penalty of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Sin drives us away from the holy presence of God. But the love of God through the altar, through the cross of Christ, makes the way for us. In fact, God's love is defined for us by the sacrifice of Christ. 1 John 4.10, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The satisfying sacrifice is what propitiation means. God the Father is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. That is the only way to have our sins forgiven. The altar, the cross, is the key to all the blessings of God. It's the key to our eternal destiny. Are my sins covered by the sacrifice of Christ? That's the first question I have to ask myself. If I have turned from my own way and I've placed my faith in him, then I can be confident that I'm welcome in God's presence now and forevermore. Ephesians 3 says that in Christ we have boldness and confident access through our faith in him. We have the blessing of an unbreakable, eternal relationship with our God. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we are given all the blessings in the heavenly places in him. John Piper says that all that God is, he is for us in Christ. That means that all these truths that we're talking about today, and this is just scratching on the surface of it, all these truths about God are ours in Christ to embrace. So how does that apply to me when I'm in the midst of my trial? If all my sins are forgiven, then I'm freed up from my guilt. I've got eternity secured. This moment that I'm going through is just a blip in eternity. And like Nikki Vujicic, she said he was being defined by having no arms and legs. When he put his faith in Christ, he says, my sins are forgiven, and now my life is defined by that. So no matter what our background, no matter how far we've strayed from God, no matter how messed up our relationships are, if we've put our faith in Christ, that's what defines us. And we are now freed up Because our sins are forgiven, we are freed up to extend that same mercy and grace to others in our life. This reality leads the psalmist to declare that God is his exceeding joy. And that's our next point. God is our exceeding joy. And notice that it's not God himself. Notice that it is God himself that is his exceeding joy. And it's not something that God gives him. He rejoices in the giver more than the gift. 
Dawn gave me an amazing Christmas present this past year, an AeroPress coffee maker. I absolutely love that thing. I can make the most amazing lattes, hot or cold, and they taste just like they do at Starbucks, I think. I love that thing. But for me to love that thing more than I love my wife is absolutely hideous. But if we're not careful, we can do that with the things that God gives us. We can forget that he is our exceeding joy. Exceeding means it's far beyond everything else. But the beauty of that is if God truly is our exceeding joy, then we are freed up to love the gifts that he has given us and to realize that he is the source. To realize if something is taken away from me in this life, I still have Christ. And if I have Christ, I've got everything. And this causes the psalmist to break out into song because God is worthy of his praise. Number 11, worthy. God is worthy of our praise. He says, I will praise you. He is determined, I will praise you. He chooses to praise God. And we can do that too. No matter what our circumstances, we can choose in light of the truths of God that are ours in Christ to praise him. God alone is worthy of our praise. Our circumstances don't deserve our praise. And concern, God does. And these truths aren't just ethereal or unreachable platitudes. They're ours because through faith in Christ, we belong to him and he belongs to us. And that's point 12. God is our personal God. God's people have a personal relationship with him. Notice that he says, I will praise you, O God, my God. Throughout all time, God's people have enjoyed a special relationship, a personal relationship with him. We can call him our God. The one true God has chosen to have a relationship with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. When we come to place our faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, as I said before, he takes up residence in our bodies. The very presence of God dwelling in us, the very life of God We now cry out as Galatians and Romans say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. So now the psalmist has wrestled with God. He's poured out his heart to God. And he he, he shifts from talking to God to talking to himself. He says in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Soul talk. Taking the truth of God and preaching it to ourselves. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Taking the truth of God. We need to learn the art of doing that. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book Spiritual Depression says that we listen too much to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. And it sounds like a funny statement. But when you think about it, We wake up in the morning or wake up in the middle of the night and we've got these thoughts going through our head. We're thinking about our day. I'm thinking about a meeting at 10 o'clock. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to get my kids ready for school. I've got this uh, issue I have to deal with at work that I'm not excited about and I start to get stressed out. I start to feel this anxiety. He says, stop. Take yourself by the collar and say, listen, Jesus Christ died for you The Holy Spirit lives in you. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be with you at that meeting at 10 o'clock. 
I'm going to help you shepherd your family. I'm going to help you shepherd your kids. I'm going to help you in that broken relationship. I am with you. And that's not easy. It's not easy to do. And it's not a one-time thing and now we're fixed. It's a battle. It's a day-by-day-by-day battle. But he takes the, the truths that he's just learned of God and he says hope in God. And that's our 13th point. God is our hope. And hope is a confident trust in God for the future. In Romans, he says something to the effect of why do we still hope for what we already have? In other words, hope is still to be realized. It's faith that God will fulfill his promises. Those of us who like hockey hoped that the Blackhawks would win the Stanley Cup, and they did. We hoped that they'd win last year, and they didn't. So hope in God is not a wishful... It's not a wishful... That one was for you, Steve. (laughs) It's not a wishful uh, thing that we just hope this happens, and it might not. Hope in Christ is, is an absolute assurance that it will happen. If I've trusted in Christ, I am guaranteed all the blessings of Christ forever and ever and ever. And then we come to our final truth. He says, God is our salvation. And again, this is a very personal and powerful. He says that God himself is our salvation. And we think about salvation as, as a point we make a decision to follow Christ and and. Uh, We place our faith and trust in him. We have forgiveness of sins. We have eternal life. And it is all that. God is sovereign over that. But it's God himself comes and infuses his life into us through the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.6 is just one verse that says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You didn't receive a bunch of rules. You received the king of the universe himself into your life to dwell in you, to be with you forever and ever. So we'll draw this to a close. We, we touched just on a few truths, 14 of them in five verses, and, and the scripture is filled with many more that we didn't talk about today, but all of them are ours in Christ. They're ours to embrace. They're ours solely through faith in Christ who purchased all the blessings of heaven for us at the altar of Calvary. So this is four points of application. They kind of overlap a little bit, but um, the first one is, in the midst of a crisis, run to God and not away from him. And we, do enc- we need to encourage each other to do that, no matter what the circumstances. We need to let... God's word, the gospel, define and direct our lives and not our circumstances. This one might sound kind of funny, but make the phrase, but God, part of your regular vocabulary. Something comes along, somebody says, how was your day today? Oh, it was really bad, really bad. And then we'll share what was going on. But to say it was hard, it was bad, but God was with me, God is faithful. I, ex- I know God is with me, and he's going to work it out. <clears throat> you know, I keep thinking uh, about this thing that I did or said, and it, 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 it haunts me. But God says I'm forgiven. 
but God has promised that my sins and my lawless deeds are for, for uh, he chooses to remember no more. And really battle it that way. And then finally, to just make God talk and soul talk part of our daily re- routine. Really spend, it, it, there is no shortcut. We must spend time in the word of God, opening up the word of God, pouring out our hearts to God, and then taking those truths and speaking them back to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ and the amazing, amazing mercy and grace of God. Let me pray. Father, we bow before you. God, we pour out our hearts to you. God, there are times in all of our lives where we say, God, what is going on? Where are you, God? I don't understand, God. I don't understand what's going on. I pray for all of us, God, and specifically, Lord, for for any in our midst that today are right now in the midst of something really horrible and they feel at their wit's end, they feel there is no hope, would you help them to know that there is hope? Would you help them and help us to come from that moment of crying out to you to embracing Christ and the truths that are ours in Christ. I pray, God, for any in our midst that have not come to a place of repentance of their sin and faith in Christ. God, may they know that you are holy and there is no other way to have sin forgiven. There is no other path in life that will lead to blessing, but through Christ, the cross. May you open up their eyes today, God, and may they say, God, save me, a sinner. And God, we pray for our body of, uh, here of KBC, the local body of Christ. Lord, you purchased us with your blood, your precious blood. We want to walk in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We want to love each other with the love of Christ. We want to be defined by the gospel. We want to define each other by the gospel and not to uh, point fingers and not to uh, react to each other in the flesh, but we want the spirit to control our hearts, the love of Christ to control us and drive us to love you. God, we praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.